We're not hearing the intro. Yeah, we are not either. Let's try this again. Oh, you know what? Can everyone hear us in the chat room there? Okay, yeah. So, welcome to the show, everyone. Sorry, we don't have intro music today. Uh, Blog Talk has been having some issues uh, with their, well, their whole interface, and so um, the sound clips, it looks like they're not working. So, um, you know, just reach back into your memory and play back that intro that you've heard so many times, and uh, welcome to the Truth Perspective. (laughs) So it's uh, Saturday, August 29th today, almost September. The year is fast coming to an end. Um, Seems like every year moves a little bit faster. But as that happens, the news moves just as fast and things are happening. So we're going to be talking about that today. Um, I am Harrison Cayley. I'm your host for today. And with me across the continent, virtually, we've got uh, my co-host, Elon Martin. Hey, everybody. And we've got uh, thought editors William Barbe and Shane Lachance. Hi, guys. How's it going, everyone? Hi, everybody. All right. So I, we'll just get right into it. There's a lot of stuff that's been going on the past week. We, were, we weren't able to do a show last week. Uh, we were actually traveling, so we couldn't get to the couldn't get to the studio, but we'll be covering some of the things that have gone on the last couple of weeks. So to start out with, I guess one of the big stories, the big news that um, we've you know, that we've just been seeing all over the news. I mean, I'm in Canada right now, and every day there's there's uh, stories on the local news about it and the global news, and that just has to deal with the economy. So uh, maybe to give us a rundown of just what's been going on and maybe some details about that, uh, William, did you want to fill us in? Yeah, yeah, we've been seeing the markets flying around, uh, especially starting since last Thursday. Uh, in fact, the Dow has moved 7,500 points up and down this <laughs> this past week, which is quite a large move. Um, in fact, uh, according to Business Insider, one of the uh, hot topics on the Google search trends that Americans are searching for is about <clears throat> the stock market crash. Um <clears throat> And it's hitting about 70% of the volume of the of Google search. And we know that Americans are apparently looking for information about stock market crashes at the highest level in about seven years. Now that's kind of interesting. Uh, these stock market cycles seem to occur in seven years, and this quarter of 2015 would be the seven years since the uh, since the financial crisis we've had back in 2008. Um, so with all this market turmoil, we had a good old Bill Dudley from the New York Fed uh, chiming in to help calm the markets, apparently. And he quotes, uh, from my perspective, at this moment, the decision to begin the normalization process at the September FOMC meeting seems less compelling to me than it was a few weeks ago. So after his statement, that seemed to have uh, calmed the markets and they kind of jumped back up. But... Um, What's interesting is is trying to peer behind uh, what's going on with all that, and I found a interesting graph that uh, I'll try and picture for you. It's uh, comparing the S&P 500 with the Fed balance sheet. Now, the Fed balance sheet, of course, has been growing from the quantitative easing that they have been performing until they stopped in 2014, and that's when it leveled off. 
S&P 500 pretty much follows that same curve, but it overshot a little bit in 2014 and continued into 2015 and then started to level off as well. And then we had this jerk back down that happened uh, earlier this week and then a little bit of a jerk back up, which went right in line with the Fed balance sheet's uh, implied level of what the S&P 500 should be. So I thought that was a pretty interesting marker there. So that uh, kind of makes you wonder, well, is the Fed's going to raise rate or are they going to introduce another QE to help uh, get the stock markets going again? Well, it seems like they're in a bit of a trap. Um, we're looking at what could be called quantitative tightening for, as we saw in China, they have really been trying to stabilize their currency. And they have been selling a lot of the U.S. Treasuries that they've had, which they have over $3 trillion of. Uh, they've been, they sold $200 billion of it this year so far. And uh, looks like from consensus that they could liquidate as much as a trillion of the U.S. paper. Hmm. Now, that would negatively affect what, the Fed did it of QE3 by 60%. So that's going to put a lot more of the treasuries sloshing around in the markets, and somebody's going to have to pick up those treasuries in order to keep things in line. So who's going to be picking that up? That's a big question because everybody, especially emerging markets, are really concerned about their currencies and are going to probably reduce their FX reserves as well. So that's <laughs> it looks like the Fed is going to be backed up into a corner. William, can you um can we just discuss what the QE3 and QE4 means the quantitative easing and for our listeners who are less familiar with that whole scam. Um it, it, how would you describe that? It's uh it basically the the Fed is increasing its balance sheet by buying up, um, you could say indirectly, the stocks and bonds and stuff like that, to try and keep the, the stock markets going up and keep and try and get inflation to be sparked up a little bit. Mm-hmm. But of course, that didn't seem to work. They haven't done QE4 yet. It's just been QE3. There's just talk about possible QE4 since the, the stock market just went kind of crazy and the Feds might have to step in, just like China's central banks have been doing, flooding it with just a bunch of cash to try and get people to, to buy into the stock market and keep it lifted. Mm-hmm. So that's that's pretty simple, simplistic way of looking at it. <clears throat> so, yeah, so it was quite a stunning uh, performance, and I'm sure we're going to see quite a bit more of that. But, of course, all the mainstream news is trying to calm everyone down. Mm-hmm. You know, you get this CNN, why U.S. stocks aren't headed for a crash. You know, oh, the U.S. economy isn't on the verge of a recession. Uh, China's effect on U.S. is limited, which, of course, we've just shown that that's not true. American businesses are doing pretty well outside of energy. The Federal Reserve sounds cautious. And stock prices aren't crazy high anymore. Well, none of those are true. And, but we've heard all this before. Uh, when you listen to some of the quotes that happened around 1929, 
before that Great Depression. You had John Maynard Keynes, uh, we will not have any more crashes in our time. This was back in 1927. Uh, 1928, you have uh, H.J. Simmons, president of the New York Stock Exchange. I cannot help but raise a dissenting voice to statements that we are living in a fool's paradise and that prosperity in this country must necessarily diminish and, and recede in the near future. Uh, a leading economist, Irving Fisher, in 1929 said, there may be a recession in stock prices, but not anything in the nature of a crash. Um, and again, he says, stock prices have reached what looks like a permanently high plateau. I do not feel there will be soon, if ever, a 50 or 60 point break from present levels, such as bears have predicted. I expect to see the stock market a good deal higher within a few months. <laughs> and it just kept it going with a W. McNeil market uh, analyst uh, in, 19, in October 1929. This is the time to buy stocks. This is the time to recall the words, the words of the late J.P. Morgan that any man who is bearish on America will go broke. Within a few days, there is likely to be a bear panic rather than a bull panic. Many of the low prices as a result of this hysterical selling are not likely to be reached again in many years. <laughs> And, of course, the Harvard Economic Society in 1929 says a serious depression seems improbable. We expect recovery of business next spring with further improvement in the fall. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, you have to wonder if those some of those guys sincerely meant it and were just trying to boost uh, confidence in investment um, and didn't know uh, – the deeper manipulations of the stock market at the time before the big uh, 1929 crash and subsequent depression, or if they were kind of in on the whole thing and um, and were just trying to fuel uh, the the gains that the big guys would would eventually make by buying up all those stocks that everybody was uh, selling for pennies on the dollar. Mm. So. That's that's kind of what I'm wondering about um, when I, when you read those quotes. Yeah, it's not always what you see. You know, it's always something behind the story. Yeah. Well, what you mentioned with um, did you say that Google uh, the Google search was like seventy five percent of the searches about seventy percent seventy percent volume the volume that's I mean that's massive. It is when um, when you consider all the things that you know people are searching for in Google. And you know we hear that these these repeated things that oh yeah you know the the uh, U.S. economy is strong and dollar strong and all these things and you know how for this amount of uh, searches to be to be being done like you have you have to realize that uh, it's it's just like this um, that it's not penetrating the people like people know what's going on that they're seriously frightened about you know these these uh stock market drops and um it's just kind of like boiling underneath the surface you know well i i think you know most people just kind of see the these surface symptoms and uh they don't really get what what's going on behind it um i think the whole thing with china uh, devaluing its yen is, might be used as a kind of a narrative uh, to shift the blame yeah. onto China at some point uh, when this economy goes kaflui. Um, 
when of course there are all these other factors involved, uh, like the U.S. You know, like you mentioned, William, with the quantitative easing and and all this kind of worthless fiat money that's been pumped into the system that's not backed by gold and resting on top of uh, trillion-dollar um, deficits and trillion-dollar Ponzi scheme uh, derivative uh, investments around the world. It, it's, uh, you know, it's this gigantic house of cards that uh, is just waiting to be collapsed. Yeah, and it's uh, these currency wars that seem to be at the root of it. Um, when you see the, uh, you know, all these com- all these countries trying to protect their currency because the dollar goes gets strong, it makes theirs weak. So they have to do something to counteract that. When it seems so that you get everybody jumping in doing the same thing at the same time, mm-hmm. you're just going to have chaos. Yeah. Well, it seems that um, you know a lot of these currencies too. They're still intertwined with one another. Like you know the the yen can't completely collapse without the dollar and vice versa. And I think that was another interesting news item from this past week that China really reduced a lot of um, their uh, the backing from the U.S. dollar and selling it off. Is that right? Yeah, they were selling the U.S. treasuries. You know, they have three trillion of it. That's their, called mm-hmm. their currency reserve. And so they've been selling that off as well as other countries. Uh, Brazil is another one. Mm-hmm. Um, and Malaysia, which is starting to have riots today, uh, Finding out that their government has been siphoning money, um, so they're calling. But they, you know, everyone is, especially emerging markets, are really freaking out about you know what's going on with the currency markets. Well, with what we saw this past week, it's probably just a you know very small indication of you know what we can expect in in, you know, in the coming times. Um, this all all the sort of scrambling basically to keep heads above water when the U.S. you know really collapses uh, collapses the you know the money dollar pretty much uh, is corrected as they say and um, you know a lot of uh, a lot of what you were saying along with um, China kind of being the blame you know being pointing the finger that's kind of like just the the U.S.'s national policy you know to uh, to point to China or to point to Russia and. And put the put the blame on them for you know what we uh, are responsible for uh, or our government anyway, and um, you know a lot of this started uh, back uh, in July when the uh, Chinese market you know really took a huge hit. Um, you know there were some indications there that that was a you know manufactured crisis uh, from. Um, you know, certain Western interests that that kind of started that whole um, um, that whole crash, and and I think you know a lot. Some of these events are are kind of you know the the natural result of that. You know, it's um, this in a way ties into uh, the uh, the migrant crisis and uh, that we're seeing in Europe. You know, we have um, uh, we we have the the U.S. You know, basically as U.S. and the West going in and and doing these things and causing all these issues. But I don't want to get and I'll put the cart before the horse. Well, yeah, that's a a big topic that that we'd like to get to today. Um, and there are just a couple of other points that uh, you know when when we were 
just talking about um, you know, the, the fault being shifted to China, uh, it also reminded me a little bit of um, what uh, Michael Snyder had said when he was a guest on our show, and and that was that the narrative, uh, which may actually be a, the correct one or part of the correct one, was that when the crisis comes full-blown here, uh, or just before, we'll be hearing about derivatives, uh, which is, uh, you know, like we were just saying, this huge um, multi-trillion dollar Ponzi scheme um, kind of uh, employed by the biggest, most powerful banks in the world um, that uh, is based on nothing. It's it's these complicated transactions that uh, that are based on pure speculation. And one of the reasons why we had the 2008 recession uh, in the U.S. and that spread to Europe as well. So maybe we'll get a bit of the truth um, as far as that's concerned uh, in the coming months as things continue to deteriorate. Uh, maybe not. Ultimately, it, it almost won't matter because people are going to be so stressed out when they realize they can't get their money out of the banks um, and liquidity is tied up and their money is worthless that it, it almost becomes a non-issue. Uh, and the issue becomes how do, how do I pay for things and how do I, um, how do I subsist and, and, and uh, what economy am, am I using? <laughs> yeah, Damien, Damien McBride, he, he was a special advisor to Gordon Brown and mm-hmm. head of the communications at the Treasury. And uh, he even uh, tweeted a bit of a warning, and, which suggests that the stock market uh, dip could lead to civil disorder or other situations where it would be unreasonable for someone to leave the house. And he gives three uh, points of advice. Um, advice on a looming crash. Number one, get hard cash in a safe place now. Don't assume banks and check uh, cash points will be open or bank cards will work. Crash advice number two, do you have enough bottled water, tin goods, and other essentials at home to live a month indoors? If not, get shopping. And crash advice number three, agree a rally point with your loved ones in case transport and communication gets cut off somewhere you can all head to. Right. So, William, this guy is basically, this Damien McBride was a a former advisor to uh, Gordon Brown. Brown. Mm -hmm. So this is no Michael Snyder with a with a, an obscure blog. This is mainstream uh, Politico, yeah, head of the communications of the Treasury, head of the communications of the Treasury of the UK, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and and he is being vocal about having cash on hand, staying at home, um, uh, you know, having a rally point with your loved ones, right, uh, in the event that all of this should come down and you're separated. Uh, I think he also said that what's coming is going to be about 20 times worse mm-hmm. than what we had in 2008. And um, so, uh, you know, it gives you pause. Oh, yeah. Or should. You're seeing the flickering of the flame before the lamp goes out. Okay. It's a useful image. <laughs> well, do you want to get back to the... Uh uh, the immigrant crisis? Uh, sure. Yeah, so um, kind of what I was saying earlier was, 
you know, that the U.S. and, well, the West in general, but particularly the, uh, the U.S., you know, we implement these policies, and it's just staggering uh, to see how we respond to it. You know, it's always pointing the finger and saying, you know, it's this country or that country that's the problem, and, you know, it's this thing over and over and over again, and, you know, our, our people, you know, just... Um, not recognizing um, is, is it the media is so strong and, you know, warping people's minds that, you know, we can't put two and two together and see, yes, it is. You know, it's not necessarily, uh, you know, whoever the U.S. is pointing the finger at, but it's because of us. Like, it's what we're doing. Um, so, like, as an example, um, I saw an article from uh, Spectator magazine, is, uh, from which is in the UK, and uh, there was a quote in there that I thought was uh, you know, pretty apt to the situation. Uh, it was from David Cameron. Uh, so during um, during the, the fall of uh, Gaddafi in, in Libya, so he he stood in uh, Martyrs Square in, in Tripoli. And he declared that Libyans had, quote, greater friend than the United Kingdom. We will stand with you every step of the way. Now, now this is this is just awful because, you know, here um, the U.S., the the U.K., France, and and so on, NATO, you know, went into NATO or went into Libya, destroyed what was, you know. Probably one of the more one of the most advanced in terms of uh human um civilizations on the planet in, in modern times and just like completely destroyed it. Completely, um, uh annihilated like just their their infrastructure was, was destroyed, the the um the whole world that they had. I mean uh Gaddafi he was he was keeping back uh he was controlling you know, he was keeping these uh uh, these terrorists, you know, which uh, Al Qaeda, ISIS, you know, what was what would to be uh, to become ISIS, you know, he on check, and now, now that he's gone, you know, during that crisis, that that's when that's when you know these, these things blew up, and in the magazine, you know, they even recognized that um, these insurgent groups flourished. Uh, during this uh, campaign against Gaddafi, yet still, um, you know, this is a it's obviously a Western rag, and you know they they talk they say like you know it, it was right to depose Gaddafi, um, and you know just like similar nonsense about how he was a dictator and and the, just these complete lies, um, and you know it was it was these tactics, these policies that created the situation that we're seeing today. Um, and, you know, it isn't just Libyans, um, but there's, you know, many um, people from Africa who are basically trying to just uh, escape from the chaos that's been unleashed uh, from uh, American foreign policy and from the West foreign policy. It's, it's, it's just, it's horrible. And you see this. Um, there was uh, just the other day. Uh, there was um, a story. 
yeah. they found that there was 50 um, refugees who, you know, and and the, well, I'll get into that in a minute, but you know, there there was about 50 of them who lied uh, along the way, and you know, you see these pictures of these children who are washing up on shore, and it's just, um, you know, it's it's, it's maddening because uh, you know. They're just trying. They're they're trying to survive and they're trying to escape from uh, just the the utter activeness that you know we're really responsible for. And you know it's it's just it's so sad uh, to see. Um, but um, I can put some numbers up there for you. <clears throat> the number of this is from the UN Refugee Agency. The number of refugees and migrants crossing the Mediterranean to reach Europe has passed 300,000 this year, which which is up from 219,000 as a whole of 2014. And um, more than 2,500 people died making the crossing this year, not including about 200 who are feared to have drowned off Libya on Thursday. That compares with 3,500 who died or went missing in 2014. So it's really, really gone bad, and it's people, including uh, from Syria, who are, who, are, who are fleeing. And a lot of these countries who are absorbing these refugees, like Jordan, Turkey, and Iraq, they are just overfull with refugees, and they're just not giving any support at all to help to take care of these refugees. Yeah, it's it's pretty massive. Um, there is a article. It's worse since World War II. Yeah. Yeah, they said that there are about 1.2 million Syrians who are currently in Lebanon. Can you imagine that number? And there are another few million uh, kind of spread out, you know, like you were saying, William, uh, in Jordan, uh, in southern Turkey. I mean, uh, you know, this isn't, these are, if you can just put a, just use your imagination for a moment, uh, these are millions of individuals, families, uh, men, women, children, who are displaced, uh, who, who've had their lives uh, shattered um, because of the actions of the West, uh, because of the proxy forces that we're sending into Syria to overthrow it, uh, because of the proxy forces that we've sent into Libya to destroy that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the West has created these uh, catastrophes with their policies and their militarism. And uh, another quote by, by Cameron, um, this one was uh, in Amari Ruse's article that was posted to SOT earlier in the week. Uh, if you haven't had a chance to look at it, it's called Victims of Western Wars Forced to Flee Their Countries, called Swarms of Marauding People by Western warmongering politicians. Pretty well describes it. Um, so, yeah, so Cameron is, is is basically saying, you know, in, in kind of response to some of, uh, to some of the immigrants moving towards Western Europe, he says, this is very testing. I accept that because you've, you've got a swarm of people coming across the Mediterranean, seeking a better life, wanting to come to Britain, because Britain has got jobs, it's got a growing, terrible place to live. It's a nice commercial there, David. Uh, but we need to protect our borders by working hand in glove with our neighbors, the French, and that is exactly what we are doing. Typical 
you know, callousness to them that he's had a hand in in creating. Reminds me a bit of uh, you know a lot of migrant Mexicans were trying to cross the border into the U.S. Why? Because of the narco state that the U.S. has created in Mexico. Um, you know, thanks to our uh, GOP uh, uh, campaigner Jeb Bush and, and his uh, and the Bush crime family and, and the likes of him and his buddies in the CIA. I mean, uh, you know, the, the scope of uh, criminality here and the problems that are being created as a result uh, of so many, it's it's mind-boggling. Um, Go ahead, Harrison. Oh, I was just going to point out just how sickening it is that it is the like the the cause of this crisis and the cause of the reason why these refugees are seeking refuge in Europe is because of the policies of Europe and the United States. And then when these refugees then arrive in some European country, that just gives that country an excuse to then or an excuse and a pretext to then um, use that to to further their you know anti-terrorism laws and so-called so for example then you have this immigrant problem where oh look all these this swarm of muslims has just come to our country and now um isn't that convenient for all of the intelligence agencies who can then um you know it's the perfect recipe for a false flag because then they can they can pretty much do you know carry out any little attack that they want and then they've got this group of people of these refugees they can say um, we're responsible so not only do we cause uh, do the western countries cause the problem in the first place but then we just uh, compound the problem for these refugees by then demonizing them and basically uh, just turning our racism um, against them in an even sicker way and making their lives even more miserable so it's really uh it's just sickening to think about uh how it all plays out yeah and in response the governments decide to tighten up all kinds of uh, privacy restrictions <clears throat> to track down these so-called possible terrorists yeah. well uh you know all of this kind of feels like a a repeat of history of world war Two. Uh, in many ways, uh, it's like there are these similar dynamics being played out that um, that if you don't know, uh, you know, many of the ways in which things came about in World War II may not seem uh, like a repeat or familiar. But um, I was just looking uh, excellent little book, The Cunning of History: The Holocaust and the American Future by Richard L. Rubenstein. Uh, which I had read some time ago, and it talks about denationalization decrees that Nazi Germany instilled uh, in the 30s and 40s. And um, so basically these immigrants are, are being forcibly denationalized. Mm. Uh, you know, the, their governments aren't revoking their citizenship, but because of circumstances foisted upon them, uh, and a sheer... Uh, Desire to to live with with some degree of of uh, security and and uh, basic um, sustenance, they are moving to these areas of the world. Um, anyway, uh, Rubenstein in his book 
says that in 1933, the Germans used their denationalization decrees. They were by far the most ominous. They empowered the Minister of the Interior to cancel naturalizations granted between November 9, 1918 and January 30, 1933. They further provided that all persons of German nationality residing outside of the Reich could be deprived citizenship at the discretion of the state. The decree was aimed at Jews and political dissenters. At the time, the denationalization decrees were first promulgated. Few people dreamed of the upgrade to which stateless persons had been condemned by the paper violence of the bureaucrats. In fact, quite a few persons originally claimed that they were stateless as a device to prevent deportation to their native countries. Actually, when those countries, this is the important part, were taken over by hostile regimes. Unfortunately, the Nazis clearly understood the importance of the question of statelessness. When they, began, when they began to deport Jews from such occupied nations as France, Bulgaria, and Hungary, they insisted that the deportees be stripped of citizenship by their respective governments no later than the day of deportation. There was no need to denationalize Polish and Russian Jews because the Nazis had destroyed the state apparatus as soon as they occupied the territory. Absence of a state apparatus in Poland and occupied Russia was an indication of the ultimate fate of the Poles had the Germans won. In the case of the German Jews, the Nazis had used a very simple bureaucratic device to strip them of citizenship. On November 25, 1941, citizenship law was amended to provide that a Jew, quote, who takes up residence abroad was no longer a Reich national. The property of such persons was to be confiscated by the state. Thus, as soon as the SS transported Jews beyond the German border, how unwilling the Jews were to be transported, they lost all rights as German. No government anywhere was concerned with what happened to them. The last legal impediment dealing with them in any fashion the German government elected had been removed. You know what else this reminds me of? It reminds me of uh, the Israelis uh, and the Palestinians. You know, a... Um, but what is that statement? The country um, without a people for a people without a land without a people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, it, it's it's the denial of of citizenship, of history, of 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 roots. But this goes into all sorts of different directions. Well, and that's a yeah, it's a policy from the United States, like that we see too. It, it's um, it's it's really interesting. Uh, way to, to to look at it, Yolanda, because um, we don't have this overt uh, control where people are uh, having their citizenship revoked. But really, you know, it is the result of this uh, messianic and just really um, self self serving. Um, destructive ideology that the United States has that, you know, it's it's the world's policeman, it's the it needs to maintain this uh, uh this hegemony over the world and you know, it's the result of this that is pushing people out and you know, whether it, it really doesn't matter so much that it's not this overt way of, you know, having this law in place. It's it's the results that matter and um 
and it's happening on such a, a grayer scale now than it was before and you know I think that's a a, a big cause for concern and uh, a big reason we should all be you know keeping our eyes open and seeing you know how this all develops um you know I have to I have to think too with um all these earth changes going on um, and the reversal see the reversal of uh of uh these migrant crises happening uh sometime in the future you know not necessarily people from the south going north but vice versa and uh you know it kind of reminds me a little bit of uh, i think it was independence day when all the americans were trying to go and get to mexico at the end there um, the day after tomorrow. Oh, day after tomorrow. Yeah, the day after tomorrow. That's not it. Um, so, you know, who, who who knows what's in store? Uh, as long as we have these, you know, are, are driven by these um, um, these racist ideas or, or these these um, ideologies that keep us separate from you know um, from each other. You know, these these borders, you know, don't define us. And that's what uh, you know. A lot of people would would like us to think, and you know, it's. Uh, but when you when you see these pictures of, of these people and the just the the suffering that they're going through and the pain in their face, uh, it's just um, you know, it's harrowing. And how how can you not um, how can how can you not um, as another human being going through uh, through trouble and um you know, that with their suffering yeah, and, exactly um well you guys well, you, mm-hmm. i was just going to you gonna, mentioned lebanon go ahead. you mentioned lebanon and what was the figure that you guys had was it over a million refugees from syria have entered have are in lebanon was that it uh 1.2 million yeah, the population, and consider that the population of Lebanon is four and a half million. That's like uh, that's like twenty five percent of their population. So can you imagine like a, a country like the U.S. receiving twenty an increase by twenty five percent of their of their population in refugees? Now, in Lebanon, um, in the news the past week has been um, well about a week ago. August 22nd, there were protests because Lebanon is another country that's just experiencing a really bad uh, economic depression. And part of this, part of the reason is um, the intervention in Syria, and there is this refugee problem as well. Now, what happened was that uh, because of the depression, the, the government has been trying to basically figure out what they can put money towards, and there has been a lack of funding towards certain areas, like one of which is garbage removal. So or Beirut is just um, getting, like, there's garbage all over, garbage in the streets, because no, one's gonna, no one can pick it up. There's no one to remove the garbage, and they shut down one of the major landfills there. And so one of the plans that the government had was to privatize garbage removal, and the people didn't like that because, um, well, first of all, they'd, they'd, there would be lower standards and less accountability. And so they've been protesting, uh, you know, since the 22nd, the 23rd, against uh, against this garbage removal. Now, this, of course, is another 
perfect uh, breeding ground for color evolution, like we talked about two weeks ago. Um, because just this in these last few days, the protests have turned violent, and now it's not strictly a, a matter of, you know, a, 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 um, a specific issue that can be dealt with or not, like garbage removal. It, the the category has kind of broadened into anti-corruption, and you know where have we heard that before um, with protests against corruption? That's that's one of the just the the rally cries of all these color revolutions. So there, uh, there are and have been these increasingly violent protests and with increasingly violent police response, too. So it is looking like a, another recipe for disaster. And, of course, Lebanon with Hezbollah is one of the, um, the kind of three allies in the region against the, the – and kind of in contrast to the, the Saudi um, Qatar UAE kind of group that's always um, allied with the U.S. So you've got Hezbollah in Lebanon, you've got Iran and, and Assad in Syria, and so um, the the issue there is is kind of uh, at this point where anything could happen. They have Lebanon hasn't had a president for the past year. Um, there's just this prime minister, and the prime minister is his job to appoint the president, but he hasn't been able to for the last year, and he's saying that he. He will resign if the the political gridlock continues. So that would put Lebanon in this constitutional crisis where they don't have a president or prime minister, and that kind of that just opens the opens the playing ground for even more uh, possibilities for um, you know intrigue and and outside intervention. Now this relates to what's going on in the region as well because. Um, if this, if any kind of color revolution is successful in Lebanon, that will um, pretty much um, occupy the the resources of Hezbollah, who will most likely have to um, kind of cut back on the fighting that they've been doing against ISIS in Syria, and that will basically possibly open the doors to to Beirut, to Lebanon for ISIS and open the country up to even more devastation. Um, basically open the doors to to Western-backed uh, terror groups, like as has happened in Syria and Iraq and Libya. And so that's just one of the things going on um, and just one part of which is this refugee crisis. Wow. Well, That's interesting, and uh, there's just um, another piece to this. I know we wanted to discuss uh, quite a bit more about that situation in particular, um, and Harrison, you wrote a, an interesting piece for Sod earlier in the week um, that I hope you can uh, review in a moment. Um, the, the one other uh, kind of facet uh, that's been in the news recently was this um, operation in Melbourne, Australia. Um, there was a um, a kind of a, I guess a crackdown is what they're calling it. Uh, there's an organization, um, kind of their border protection service, that was going to basically stand in one of the busiest commercial districts of Melbourne. And, uh, and ask people papers uh, indiscriminately, ostensibly to cut down on illegal immigration. But uh, there was a big social media campaign in Australia, 
and and this group uh, backed down. Um, it's interesting to note that they were thoroughly militarized. They all had kind of military outfits and, and I think were armed as well. Um, um, but there were a number of, of people who spoke out against it and uh and so they stopped the operation um and i you know it it just speaks to you know how uh not only is that there this kind of um vacuum of of constructive approaches to the immigration problem uh but there's this kind of militarized response uh that's being attempted here and um Australia is, is very aligned with the U.S. in many ways. Uh, the NSA also has a gigantic complex in Australia. I think that's their, you know, that's their little uh, outpost, out, you know, out there in that part of the world. Uh, so there is this kind of um, fascistic totalitarian element that also runs there. And you have to wonder if if they're running their own little, you know, mini kind of psyop in, in trying to find out who's going to speak out against these types of things and take names. Well, or also use those elements, um, you know, the the nationalists uh, to, you know, to really um, um, kind of use the situation for their advantage. You know, it seems that uh, kind of crises uh, bring out these types of characters, these nationalistic folks who, you know, are you know just foaming at the mouth about immigrants, and we see time and time again how, you know, this is another aspect uh, that the you know, powers that be use for uh, color revolutions and similar things. You know, create this um, this upsurge in this nationalistic identity, and. And that can be, you know, used for for, for all, all sorts of purposes. But it is nice. It's nice to see that, you know, there was this campaign in Australia. I, I saw um, kind of the opposite in Germany. Um, the, uh, I think Merkel. She came to um, one of the immigration. She she was going to be um, basically trying to uh, uh, calm the storm. Uh, there was some protests there, and no fan of Merkel, of course, but um, and she definitely deserves to be heckled. But in, in this case, it was uh, heckling, you know, against uh, any kind of. Um, she, she was basically, you know, trying to say, you know, we need to do something um, about these uh, about the immigra- immigration crisis, and um, you know, there was just. A crowd foaming at the mouth, and you know, you know, no, we don't want to have anything to do with it. Um, so it, it it seems that these this uh, migration crisis could bring out those those types of characters. Mm-hmm. Um, Germany for Germans. Yeah. Um, but to, I wanted to get back a little bit to um, what we were talking about earlier with uh, Gaddafi and. You know how that whole situation led to um, you know the creation of, of ISIS, and um, it was it's a it's a good example of history. And you know, if, in uh, if we had leaders who were capable of learning from history, 
that that would be great. But obviously, we don't. Um, there was a, uh, but just I just want to relate how this the, how that situation relates to you know, the whole campaign against the Saad. Um, right now, uh, you know, there's it seems like a, a, a doubling up a doubling up of the approach to try, you know, try to remove Assad from power. And um, what was interesting was that there was a, a French politician uh, in an interview with uh, Le Point. Uh, his name was uh, Nicolas Dupont uh, Aragon, Aragon. Um and he noted this, uh, you know, how just this relationship. Um, that's that's happened time and time again. Uh, he says, uh, first the Americans toppled Saddam Hussein, and then the French overthrew Gaddafi. These actions exposed exposed the catastrophic consequences of an ill-conceived neo-colonial policy. They resulted in the destruction of national governments, the imposition of uh, Sharia law the flow of migrants from Libya, and the barbarity of ISIL in the Middle East. Um, so he he talks about this, um, how, you know, what we've done in the past is, you know, creates these the consequences that we're seeing now. And, and how, you know, basically without Assad, um, you know, there would be no, uh, you know, ISIS, ISIL, whatever you want to call them, you know, they they would grow tremendously, and is that what the West really wants? You know, could very well be uh, from if if the past is any indicator, which it is. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to bring that up. Well, Harrison, did you did you want to? That might be a good launching point for yeah your piece on Syria. Yeah, because. Um well, like like Shane just said, the it looks like the agenda, the American agenda, isn't exactly what they say it is. Obviously, so uh, it never is. So the, ostensibly, the U.S. and their coalition wants to stop ISIS. So they have been having these airstrikes against ISIS for months and months and months, and with recent developments. But um, it doesn't look like that's actually what they want. These airstrikes are ineffectual they often miss their targets they end up killing civilians and even like in iraq um end up killing the people fighting isis so example the the either kurdish forces or the volunteer iraqi brigades or um even you know iraqi army and then the airdrops for supplies supposedly to help the uh, the u.s's allies fighting isis just happened to fall into isis hands so there's a big disparity between the words and the actions in this uh, this U.S.-led anti-ISIS coalition. So what's been happening? Um, it's what what really what I think is really cool is and really funny kind of is that Russia has taken that um, propaganda that that um, you know the official story and. Uh, and used it in such a way to appropriate it for themselves in a way that puts the U.S. in a tough position. Now, the way they've done that is because, uh, well, several things are going on. 
So we've had this this recent Iran deal, uh, the nuclear deal. So Iran is kind of now back in the international community in a way that it wasn't even just several months ago. So Iran and Russia have been uh, close for years. And so just on that front, um, the, I think the foreign ministers of, of Iran and Russia met recently, and they after which they expressed their um, their unity regarding the posi- their position on Syria. So um, so what they're doing is they're saying that oh sorry I just got a I think we might have a caller just let me double check here. Oh yeah, it looks like we might have a caller. So let's we're going to take this and see if we do Hi there. Uh, do we have a caller? If so, what's your name? Yeah, and yeah. This is Kent. Can you hear me? Oh, hey, Kent. How's it going? Yeah, we can hear you just fine. Hey, Kent. Okay. Yeah, you were talking about the um, the uh, massive uh, listening post in Australia, and that uh, I had actually read an article um, just within the last week to about that, and I think actually a uh, one of the politicians down there saying, "Hey, look, we're we're talking number one because we have all this stuff." And what, you know, and they've got, well, you can imagine the amazing sort of down there, which... Hey, Kent, you're you breaking up a little bit, just so you know. Is that better? Is that better? Yep. Thanks. Yeah. Okay. And um, about the amazing technology, and that made me think now, MH370, which supposedly disappeared, uh, you know, uh, 500 miles off Perth or something. Of course, I've never believed that. And um, it makes me think that surely, surely uh, the United States government with all that would have been able to track that. Of course, they would never disclose that they could track it because that tips it off, but they could have. Uh, anyway, it, it just sort of supports my old theory that that plane was, was uh, stolen, and you mentioned Iran. My theory was that the, the plane was taken to Diego Garcia or some ways and was, was it with the intention because we had this story about the, remember the Iranian with stolen passports on it. So immediately uh, you have a missing plane with Iranians on board, and that sets Iran up as a false flag. In other words, if that plane were ever to be used uh, as a false flag, it can blame Iran. So that, um, of course, that, that Iran, I'm sure, knows that. They, they believe not, you know, they don't believe the official story about 9-11. They think that was a false flag. And they were aware of that. And now, interestingly, as the the, the peace deal or the um, the talks, you know, the seeming peace deal with Iran comes up, um, this little wing flap is supposedly found from MH370 on Reunion Island, in a, in a, a French, um, uh, you know, a French protectorate. Uh, uh, and of course, the French are on board with the uh, the you know the and. Of course, that sort of, um, I thought that that was sort of a way of telling Iran, alleviating the threat of this um, this being potentially used, because um, I'm sure Iran knew that there's a plane out there with Iranians on board and nobody can find, and I'm sure that they would have recognized that as a potential, um, you know, weapon that could be used and used to to blame them, and then, you know, the invasion would be on. 
So, you know, that's, that, you know, with all that listening, they, sh- you know, they surely would have been able to track a uh, domestic airplane, you know, seems to me. Well, that's, that's an interesting comment. Um, and, of course, you know, you, you'd think with all the technology we know that they have and probably a, a ton of technology uh, that isn't um, public knowledge that someone somewhere has some idea of what happened to that plane. Um, we do know that uh, there have been other kinds of really almost um, – paranormal disappearances of, of planes and vessels around the world um, that probably had no connection to any political uh, disappearance of, of any kind. So uh, your guess is as good as mine, Ken. And, um, yeah, did you have any other comments or thoughts today? No, that just um, when you commented about that, I had just seen that article, so I just I thought I'd throw that out there and see if you found it interesting. So. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, it, it is interesting to me that that they would choose Australia to have this um, listening outpost, as you say, um, and I think it's been around for close to twenty years. I mean, it's it's not uh, it's probably not some um, small thing. Um, and, and that it would be this kind of U.S.-funded, sponsored, uh, listening, you know, secretive intelligence-gathering uh, apparatus in Australia. It's interesting to speculate why Australia, why not, um, you know, why not Israel or, or some other place um, necessarily, although there's probably one there, too. Well, it's the old English-speaking alliance, you know, uh, Canada, the U.S., Britain, New Zealand, you know, the common language, common heritage, sort of, a, uh, you know, the five eyes. You know, they, these countries are linked by heritage and language and uh, Anglo-Saxon sort of thing. All empires under the skin, huh? Right, yeah, yeah. Still, uh, still the beast is there. You know, it's just not... Has a, has a different form, but it's still still the old English Empire, British Empire, mm-hmm. and a, with an American flag draped around it. I think you know. Uh-huh. Oh, well, thanks a lot. Uh, thanks, Ken. Right, thanks. thanks for your call. Thanks. Okay. All right. So yeah, back to this. What I was talking about: Iran and Syria. So this nuclear deal kind of opened up possibilities for Iran, and that is a danger to the Western coalition against ISIS and against uh, Assad, because freeing up Iran from all these sanctions frees up a lot of money, which they can then use to support their ally Assad in Syria. So, um, but Russia ties into all this as well. As, you know, we'll we'll see in all these all these different countries and what's been going on for the past month. So there's a bit of background to the Iran story, because in 2007, Russia made a deal with Iran to supply them with these S-300 long-range defensive uh, missile systems, surface-to-air missiles. And in 2010, you know, in response to the U.S.-led 
sanctions against Iran and against uh, and this embargo against uh, this weapons embargo, um, Russia reneged on its uh, on the deal on the contract. So it was kind of like a, a it was a type of mistral situation where the contract had been signed and then Russia said, "Oh no, we can't do it." You know, ostensibly, well, because the Americans basically said they couldn't do it. So Iran filed a lawsuit against the Russians for this. But now that the, the the nuclear deal has gone through, Iran and Russia are still close and getting closer. So it looks like the, the lawsuit's going to be ignored and the deal is going to be fulfilled. So Russia is going to be supplying Iran with these weapons. And they've also talked about... Um, well, uh, you know, numerous other trade deals and stuff like that. So it, Russia um, or Iran and Russia looks like they're they're making deals so that Russia will supply uh, Russian-built nuclear reactors. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, so basically, Russia and Iran are very close, and this ties into their um, their perspective on what's going on in Syria. Now, Russia is not just doing this in Iran; they're doing it with countries all over. Uh, the Middle East and the ones that they have you know, traditional ties with. So it's also happening in Egypt. So recently Putin met with uh, President al-Sisi. And um, again, with t- with talk about deals for, tr- well, trade deals, and so food and, again, nuclear technology, um, nuclear reactors for, for nuclear energy. And so um, this is on a side note, it's kind of an interesting response and uh, development from the the American-led sanctions against Russia, because those sanctions have have actually opened up opportunities for non-U.S.-aligned uh, countries to increase their trade and relationships with Russia. So Russia is kind of snatching up friends all over the world as a result of these of these sanctions. So Egypt is getting closer with. Uh, with Russia. Even Turkey will get to that, but Iran and uh, Syria. So it's it's like the U.S. again and the West in general have shot themselves in the foot by attempting to to um, um, kind of hinder the, the Russian bear. They have actually ended up opening, opening up all these opportunities that will do exactly the opposite. So uh, I mentioned earlier the well in response to Shane about this this anti-ISIS coalitions uh, and how just what a farce it is so the Russians have taken that line and just taken it to its natural conclusion so they said okay well you know everyone knows that ISIS is bad and we want to fight them now seeing as how the US led coalition is going so poorly let's create a real anti-ISIS coalition involving the actual countries involved so not all these um external third parties that are joining together to to um, fight ISIS in foreign nations, sovereign foreign nations. Let's actually get all these people together to do the fight. So that includes um, all of the all the fight the fighting forces in Iraq, in Syria. That would include Assad's legitimate military, the Syrian army, and uh, Hezbollah, and and with with the support of other nations. So that could even include, um, you know. Foreign countries not necessarily directly involved, like Russia or like like Saudi Arabia, and so this this proposal just makes perfect sense because you'd if you've got the problem, that's the the most obvious way to solve it. 
And so that's the, that's the way that they've put the U.S. in a bind, because the U.S. doesn't really want to solve the problem. So by pre- by presenting an ish, uh, a proposal that will actually solve the problem, that's you know the U.S. really has no um, reasonable way of getting out of it, um, or of not accepting it, because ostensibly it's proposing exactly what they want. Now, there are other other issues that come into play. So the way this all kind of started happening was uh, at the beginning of August, the U.S. got together their um, their little special force of moderate rebels. So, you know, they scour, scoured Syria looking for moderate rebels and found, you know, about 60. And so they trained these guys, and these were the guys that they were going to use. You know, it was going to be their, their fighting force against Assad, essentially, um, to basically take over the government and... and what happened was it didn't really work out so well because first they refused to fight um, the Al Nusra Front, these guys, this little band of fighters, and then um, they ended up being attacked by Al Nusra. So you know, in their first engagement, they didn't end up faring too well, and so then in response to that, Obama pledged to support these rebels um, pretty much by any means necessary. So whoever attacks these, this little force, um, the U.S. will back them up, um, providing airstrikes um, to you know, self-defend these guys against any, any attacks on them. And, of course, that would include any attacks by the legitimate Syrian military. So this was almost, um, almost like a, a mini-declaration of war that, that uh, was a, a brazen threat that the U.S. would attack the Syrian army if, if they attacked the U.S.'s rebels who were trained to attack the Syrian government. So it's just a total mess. But the response to that was that, um, well, first of all, the immediate response, the immediate follow-up was that the U.S. has been carrying out um, bombings in Syria um, from base, their NATO, the NATO bases in Turkey. So Erdogan and Turkey is a whole other story. Uh, maybe we can get into that, maybe not. But to stick with, with what's going on um, in Syria, the, the Russian response to this was really interesting because uh, there was this one guy, um, one, of the, you know, one of the top military people, I can't remember who he was the head of, um, but he basically said that the Russian, like some kind of airborne division or something, would, you know, we're ready to, to fly into to to Syria and you know set up our special forces and aid in any way, and then uh, Dmitry Peskov, Putin's, Putin's uh, press secretary, said, "Oh no, you know we don't have any plans like that." Um, so there's no official plans for for uh, Russian troops to actually go in and you know send their special forces to to join in the fight, but the the language is being uh, spread. Those things are being talked about by by other Russians. So. That in itself is interesting. Now, um, in addition to that, so we've got um, Russia proposing this this alliance, um, this anti-ISIS uh, coalition, in contrast to the the American-led one, and we've got them supporting and giving aid to all of these countries that are actually at threat, so Syria and Iran and Iraq. And what has uh, so just lately, the another story that's come out is that for the past several weeks, Russia has been sending military advisors to Syria. 
now. Um, I read one analysis by um, Karibko. Is his name Andrew Andrew Karibko? Um, and he he was he had an interesting point that uh, for what he was saying is that um, if the well, first of all, if the U.S. were to to um, to attack and to target this, the the Syrian army, that would be um, a big, a major development that would lead to probably a total bombing and the more traditional way of regime change, which is just to bomb the heck out of the the official government and their military in order to set up a new one. So basically just traditional kind of bomb the hell out of them warfare. Now, Russia, of course, doesn't want that. So when at the beginning of the month when Obama and the U.S. were saying these sorts of things, that was it was uh, a big threat, and it was probably perceived as such. And so um, Karibko, in the, his analysis, which I, I thought was pretty interesting, was that the response to that from the Russians, the only real response that they could have was, well, first of all, either let it happen, which isn't, doesn't seem to be a, a, a viable choice, or to move their military advisors to... Um, basically to, to embed them in with the Syrian army at these various locations. So any attack on the Syrian army by the U.S. would be an attack on the Russian military, who has their advisors with the Syrian army. So it looks like that is, the, or at least something similar to that, is what's going on right now, because um, in addition to the monetary support and the weapons and these military advisors, there have been at least rumors that it's it's more than that, that the Russian advisors want to set up a, a military base at this region um, close to Damascus, um, well, out, outskirts of Latakia in, uh, in a village there, and that this could be um, kind of the first stages in... Uh, in kind of an intelligence gathering for a possible UN, uh, well, a pos possible deployment of international forces under the UN, or even um, a collective security treaty organization. That's one of Russia's, uh, you know, the security military organization that they have allied with various uh, countries in there, in that part of the world. And so another thing that Russia has done is that they've started providing Syria with um, satellite imagery. So this is the first time that they've done that for the Syrians. So it looks like a lot of support is now being given, and things are moving pretty fast in response to this American, uh, you know, the, the, the latest um, kind of calls for war and the, the latest um, signs of aggression from the Americans. But I'm just going to, I think we've got a caller here, so I'm going to go to the caller and see who we've got. So, caller, are you there? What's your name? Do you have a question? Hello? Hello, yes. Who do we have? Uh, this is Hugh. This is Hugh Hi, Gassel. You. Hey, I had a question about uh, exportation into Syria. Okay. Do you know about that? What, exportation? Yes. No, could you, could you go into detail? Yeah. Yeah. Um, evidently, they uh, banned exportation of aquatic wildlife into Syria because there's not enough water to put them in. Okay. okay. Do you Does want to develop that, that a little bit for us? 
Do you know anybody, anything about that? Because I want to try no. to, I've, i got a new business here in um, Texas that I want to start um, exporting um, aquatic wildlife into Syria because I think that that market is uh, wide open. Okay, That's great. Well, yeah. interesting. Thank you for your caller. Good luck. Thank you for your Good call. luck with that. All right. So yeah. You want to continue? Yeah. Um, well, I think that's. I think that's pretty much all. Oh well, there's. Um, in addition to all that, um, so there's all these countries involved, right? And so it seems like Russia has been um, diplomatically. You know, there have been talks going on with all these countries involved for the past months and more, and even with Saudi Arabia. Now mm-hmm. it's hard to to know what's been going on with any like definite info with you know the talks between Saudi Arabia and Russia but at least in the rumor mill it's that the the Russians have you know basically told Saudi Arabia and Saudi Arabia seems to be conceding that um, maybe they have or things are getting out of con- out of their control so they've been they've been supporting these you know radical wahhabi terrorists for so long and it may end up being more of a liability to them than an aid and so that um, and there's that in addition to their their engagement in Syria, so there's the or no, it's not Syria, sorry, Yemen. So all of the the resources they've been putting into the Yemen war, um, it looks like they the the Saudis will want to focus on that more than on Syria. So Russia is trying to um, to kind of take the claws out of Saudi Arabia at least in regard to Syria, and it looks like the Saudis even may be uh, willing to to uh, cooperate with this Russian-led coalition, um, the anti-ISIS coalition. So there's that, um, which is pretty interesting development because, of course, Saudi Arabia has been one of the U.S.'s main uh, um, main allies in creating ISIS and getting them into all these countries, training them, etc. And not only ISIS, but originally Al-Qaeda. So, so that would be an interesting development if it is true and if it, if it happens. And uh, it may be Iran that submits the well. The, the apparently they, they, Iran is working on this four-point proposal for the UN for resolving the Syria crisis. So it may be this this Russia-Iran um, um, UN proposal that gets things moving. Um, and um, I think that's everything I want to talk about with that. Unless you guys have any questions, or unless you realize that I missed something important. <laughs> Well, I think, um, yeah, if we could talk about Turkey a little bit, because I think that that's just a really interesting topic. It seems that, you know, for uh, the past number of years, Turkey's kind of been going back and forth uh, between aligning with the U.S. and uh, and also, you know, seeing what it can get from, from Russia. And in your recent article, you mentioned how uh, it seems that the Gazprom deal may be dead in the water uh and going through turkey so yeah so um go ahead yeah um well just to give a little bit of background so of course the turkey is the nato member and they've been pretty close with the u.s and then last year when the south stream deal fell fell through russia started this uh, this turkish stream deal so it looked like turkey may be turning more towards russia than uh than nato and the u.s but then just just this last month, of course, Turkey um, agreed and has been 
has been letting their their air bases, their NATO air bases, being used for to, for bombing Syria. So Erdogan has also come out saying things like that Turkey will never recognize uh, Russia's annexation of Crimea. Um, Erdogan has also been saying that he thinks that Putin will basically give up on Assad, and he thinks that that's the way that things are going, that Assad is going to, to lose all his support. Uh, well, and there's no evidence for that. Uh, Russia, has, if anything, has been showing increasing support for Syria. So, um, but Erdogan might be just wishfully thinking there and, and revealing what he really wants, if that's what he really wants. Because, um, like you said, Shane, they, they, he, Turkey has been going back and forth, and it's hard to know what they're what they're doing. Um, so, so. Uh, now, Terry Massan wrote an article, and uh, I linked to it. He thinks that the Turkish stream is dead in the water, that it's canceled. I haven't been able to find anything that says that definitively. Um, that Now, Gazprom did suspend some related contracts in July, um, but from what I can tell in other sources, it's, it's, you know, it's still in the works, and it's still open to a certain degree. So I don't think that uh, I don't think we can say with any certainty that that uh, you know Turkey has drawn a line in the sand or not. It seems like they are still kind of uh, still could go either way. Maybe uh, it's hard to tell. I don't know. Uh, Harrison, I think we have another caller. All right, let's see here. Maybe they want to export animals to yeah. Turkey. Hi, so caller. Let us know who you hey. are. Hey, yes, this hey. is Jonathan. Hi, Jonathan. Hi, Jonathan. Jonathan. Hey. Yes, uh, oh. about the previous caller. Yes, I, I think that I, I saw somewhere on the internet that hidden in the back pages in a small article in the New York Times, and I believe also the Wall Street Journal that yes, these bastards have uh, banned aquatic wildlife importation to Syria. Hmm. I think that might be true. All right. So, uh, well, that's good to know. It's crazy, but uh, on a serious note, um, I think that Turkey is playing chicken with with uh, Russia. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was that was that was supposed to be a joke and serious at the same time. So, uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, what you know, it is it is quite confusing, and and I, I kind of tuned in a little bit late to y'all today, but um, I think I find this uh, this situation with the. Uh, the immigration, I mean, this, this, uh, these refugees entering Europe, I find this to be really, really a fascinating subject because um, it's as though, uh, well, these are obviously refugees from the conflicts that were backed by the elites in, um, in Europe, um, you know, under the thumb of the United States. So, like, all of this is coming home to roost and impacting on the people of Europe in a, in a real way. Um, but, you know, you don't hear that mentioned, you know, much in the dominant media about, you know, this is blowback. This is a, this is a direct repercussion from the policies of the United States, France, and, um, you know, and their policy goals for the region. So... Um, so anyway, this this impacts the people of these European countries from Moldova to uh, Serbia, um, you know, Sweden. This is um, there's a huge amount of tension um, with these people from African nations, you know, living in these areas. And uh, 
So this is stoking a lot of racism. And um, I'm trying to wrap my mind around it because on the one hand, people are like, well, you know, you should feel for your fellow human being. Um, but at the other hand, um, these elites seem to be doing this, uh, you know, flooding these people. Uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a calculated type of uh, political game plan. And uh, what it does is it brings down, it puts downward pressure on working class wages in Europe. And then it uh, puts stresses on their budgets and so forth. And then at the same time, it's, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's a way of getting people who would fight the, colonial, the colonialist imperialist ambitions of the United States and its European lackeys, you know, keeping, you know, basically diluting the population of uh, able-bodied fighters in these countries at the same time. So, um, go ahead. Well, I was just thinking it's it's chaos creation on a mass level. Um, you know, you said, Jonathan, that uh, the elite, you know, that this is in some way by design. Uh, you know, someone somewhere had to anticipate the ramifications of destroying these these countries and what it, what it might do to the local populations. And... Um, you know, on the other hand, uh, they they might not have even thought that far. It seems to me, it, you know, it, you know, all, all the better if if things are more uh, um, a mess and chaotic uh, in order to uh, prevail and increase its own position in a way. Um, yeah, yeah, confusing because um, we are at a, a, a an end game, if you will, that. It's reached a point that where capital is is international, so you know uh, the game plan. These these international elites, you know, they're among the, the select. They can go to fly off to, you know, these these uh, very obscure locations in the world to you know to to shelter themselves and their loved ones from uh, nuclear fallout. Um, so. It's as though they can just they just do all this batshit, I mean, this this crazy policies that people know, you know, it's going to cause like instability and all of that. But they um, they would rather fuel this mm -hmm. uh, because the more there's confusion, um, they're the ones with their you know they're they're calm, cool, and collected, and they sow this confusion and. Because the game plan is divide and conquer, and um, so it seems to be that cynical. Yeah, and and you can definitely say batshit crazy on the truth perspective. That might be uh, one of the more apt terms we use here. Um, you know, but but the irony is that these elites, um, when it comes down to it, yeah, they might fly off to their uh, chalet in Geneva or Patagonia or, or wherever. But at the end of the day, uh, it's going to catch up to them too. And that's what they don't realize with all their wealth and they're living in their bubbles, their narcissistic, psychopathic, sheltered, uh, you know, realities that they've created. And, um, and so, you know, whether they realize it or not, it, it's going to come back at them, I think too. Uh, but not before creating a lot of suffering for a lot of people in a lot of places. Yeah. Well, um, well, when they're, um, 
when their vision of uh you know their visions of world domination um are be, become apparently transparently futile um it's as though that hey if i can't win you know i'm just going to make it so bad for everybody because they don't really have respect for like life or empathy for other life or a sense of curiosity you know for other people's other forms of being in life they're just in their narcissistic narcissistic uh power bubbles and uh so i just wanted but i wanted to tie in um this situation oh, oh by the way Joaquin Flores has some very very interesting things to say with the situation in Serbia with respect to the um these refugees so um and um he's 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 very cogent in my view and i, I would like to, i'd like to i would like it in the future if i could listen to an interview from with y'all and, and him it would be great well jonathan yeah I'd, uh, just to let you know if you want to try to get us in contact i tried reaching him but i never heard back so if uh if you have contact information for him, just send it to us. Yeah, I, I actually, I actually called him about a month and a half ago, and I just, I was surprised okay. that I was getting a hold of him by phone, and we had a nice forty-minute conversation by phone. I have a lot of respect for this gentleman, but um, you know, getting back to this immigrant situation here on this other program on um, Sunday, um, this program on Sunday on Saturday, I forget the name of it. Um, the uh, the other. Yes, yeah, I called in there, and I made a kind of a flippant comment. I'm just so disgusted with politics here. You're like, when you hear Bernie Sanders, you know, and, I, you know, I've, I've come from the left, you know, traditionally from the left, identified myself, you know, intellectually from the left, and then you listen to this guy, Bernie Sanders, his his view on this uh, situation in the Middle East is to, like, uh, back Saudi Arabia, Back Saudi Arabia, uh, you know, in, um, in, in, as a stabilizing force, and I just—it's just so insane, you know. I just can't. I just this guy. This, I just I've just just I just can't. I just can't. Just I despise these people. So then I. Oh, I, 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 I like made during. A each, yeah, well, I was just going to say it, during each election, it seems that you know the people need to have one of these um, you know so-called leaders that you know say a few things that make sense. Uh, just to keep the whole election farce alive. Yeah, well, they call somebody made a developed an essay where they called Bernie Sanders a sheepdog, and his goal is his job is just to herd the people that are disaffected by saying the right things mm-hmm. to keep them on the Democratic camp, and then eventually, it'll, of course, it'll be Hillary that wins it. And but he would have served his function by, as a sheepdog, and I thought that was very interesting. But I, I have no respect for this guy. I mean. He doesn't make any cogent comments with respect to, like, Russia, timely issues of the day that make sense with respect to foreign policy, just no respect. But I made a flippant comment on this other program that, yeah, I'd support Trump. And you know what? It was kind of flippant because Trump really kind of – when I heard this week that he was um, planning on, like, doing deportations of people that have um, U.S. citizenship by dint of them being born within the territory of the United States, that he was going to deport them. Uh, it's, it's obvious this guy is just stoking racism toward his yeah. end. And I just I find that despicable. There's no way I could vote for the guy after that. You know, just no way, no way, shape, or form I could ever do that. So, uh, you know, I was just disgusted at the time when the guy, things are just going so bad, the population is so dumbed down. And I'm not to say I'm not dumb too, but at least I recognize it, right? 
But uh, this is so bad, I made that flippant statement. But I've, I've known a lot of people. Um, I'm in Florida, and I've been in the construction industry, you know, for uh, my whole adult life. And I, I've seen how the, uh, the situation with, with undocumented immigration here, it really serves a, uh, a very devious function. On the one hand, it's a, it's a, two, it's a double pincher movement. You you flood the you help flood the labor market with people that are desperate, that will work in arduous conditions with basically no rights, for almost minimum wage, and they won't mm-hmm. complain. So capital, big corporations make out, and then it you know of course that puts downward pressure on wages, and um, I've seen it firsthand being in the landscaping industries here, but I've you know I've resented it, and then I catch myself and like look you know. It's a far deeper situation in that a lot of these people that are from Guatemala and Mexico, a lot of them are indigenous peoples that have been here in Americas for thousands of years. So there's that component mm-hmm. of it. So, um, and I just well, it's all part of a big, um, you know, dog and pony show. And yeah, to like you said, stroke the you know fears of people and you know uh, foster racism and hatred towards uh, you know other or, or other human beings. Um, yeah. It's, Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Uh, no, I was just—I was just going to say we have another caller on the line. Uh, it's been waiting for a little while, okay, Jonathan. Well, well, but, thank, uh, well, thank you. And I—I just, I just wanted to say on that issue that, you know, it's really a shame that we can't organize, you know, people like for better working conditions, more pay. Um, it's just the population's so dumbed down. Everybody's so dispirited, and you just don't see anybody else doing that. And then um, that the context that it could happen is by inflaming hatred toward, um, you know, people people that are undocumented working here. That's just really nasty. I don't want to be part of that. So, anyway, mm-hmm. hey, thanks a lot for letting me have my say, and y'all have a nice weekend. Bye-bye. Hey, thanks, Thank Jonathan. Bye-bye. Thanks, Jonathan. All right, yeah. so. Hello? Yeah, so it looks like we've got another caller. Hi. Who are you? Hi, um. Yeah, I I just wanted to comment um on the last caller about the the amphibious creatures the Syria. Okay. I think that I don't really think that's true. I don't I've never seen anything Yeah, uh, I have a search for it. I could deportation to Syria on that. I think it was a joke that I just couldn't understand. What the guy who said that? I mean, yeah. I've never. I just did some research on Google, uh, and just couldn't find anything on that. Uh, so I mean, I think that he could probably go ahead and 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 make and create that business if he'd like to. I really don't see the viability in sending any kind of aquatic animals to Syria, though. I mean, there's not much water there. It is it is rather mountainous and desert and dry. Yeah, Yeah, so do you have anything else to comment on? Well, no, I was just trying to really figure out what the guy's business plan would be. I don't understand at all. All right. Well, yeah, Yeah, thanks. We're interested, too, but thanks for calling in. uh, I'm interested if you guys want to get him back on the line and try to ask him what he's trying to do. No, probably not. We've got other things to talk about. So thanks, man. Take care. All right, so moving on. Okay. <laughs> well, uh, getting, getting back to this whole um, 
these whole developments in Syria, Harrison, uh, with Russia, you know, stepping up a bit to uh, give uh, Assad some strategic uh, assistance, uh, it, it's really becoming an even uh, more interesting picture worldwide because, uh, you know, as we've been reading in uh, in Ukraine. Um, Poroshenko, Porky Poroshenko, has absolutely no intention to um, follow through with the Minsk II uh, protocols and agreements. In fact, he's spoken out uh, quite vehemently uh, in favor of pursuing a military um, kind of uh, approach. With, well, that's uh, funny because just a couple of days ago he, uh, like that's been his, his policy, and he's even said that. Uh, the biggest, the greatest thing about Minsk too, was it allowed the the Ukrainian army to basically rearm and regroup. But he came right. out just two days ago, I think, saying that um, that there there wouldn't be a Minsk three because Minsk two is the only way that uh, that we can possibly have peace. And so he's calling for the total implement total implementation of the Minsk agreements. And uh, so he called for an, an immediate ceasefire to to cease all current hostilities. Which was pretty interesting. Well, first of all, it's just more of the same because, of course, he's the one that has been uh, the most, uh, you know, the party that hasn't fulfilled any of the Minsk agreements. So to hear him say that is just uh, just reeks of hypocrisy. But um, but he did call for this this current ceasefire. So it just happened, you know, in the last day or two. So I don't think there's any been much follow up to it. But it'll be interesting to see what happens with that because. Um, uh, well, just for the fact that he said it and he proposed this, so something must be going on, and uh, I don't know what it is yet. Well, they did say that the Normandy Four might have a phone conversation here in the future. You know, that's Putin, Merkel, Hollande. <clears throat> No, I was just going to say, uh, you know, uh, of course, it it seems like um, Poroshenko probably got his orders to say that from Kerry or someone. Um, but him coming out and saying that, you know, they, they were taking advantage of, of all this time to regroup. I mean, how stupid can you be? Uh, it's so it's such a belligerent uh, slap in the face uh, to anyone who is sincerely trying to implement peace. Uh, between the the factions, um, you know, the guy has zero credibility. Uh, he's just an idiot, uh, and um, and so so, you know, so you now have this kind of almost um, dual fronts uh, between what's happening with Kiev and and Eastern Ukraine and and now in Syria, of uh, U.S. Proxy forces uh, trying to do their thing, um, and and Russia as gently and as uh, strategically as possible, ch- just trying to keep these other peoples uh, intact. Um, and uh, I think one or both of those situations will probably come to a head in the next few months. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh along these lines, um 
Putin has made an interesting statement recently in response to NATO's global aggression. Uh, basically, he just flat out said, we will not let you prevail. Uh, and this came out in a published uh, official uh, naval doctrine that uh, that Russia put out. Uh, Putin got together with um, with four of his top military guys, um, Viktor Cherkov of the Russian Navy, Dmitry Rogozin, um, Deputy Prime Minister of Russia uh, in charge of military matters, um, and one or two other fellows, uh, Admiral, 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 I hope he's Admirable, Admiral, Admiral, oh my God, someone help me, Gorshkov. Um, and basically what came out in this uh, in the statement um, was that uh, in regards to Antarctica and and certain other swaths of land that uh, Russia holds claim to, um, but also other areas, you know, they just flat out said, you know, it's not going to go any further than that. And it wasn't really so much a threat, you know, in the overt way that, that we might hear it. it. It's just kind of in, in the Russian style, a, a statement of fact. Um, so, as the quote says, uh, a defining factor in our relations with NATO remains that for Russia, the following is unacceptable. The alliance has planned to move its infrastructure to the borders of Russia and the attempts to give the alliance a global role. Um, and in, in reference to the statement, uh, Putin was interviewed uh, by a Swiss TV channel, and he was asked, do you believe that a war in Europe is possible? And Putin replied, I hope not but I really wish that Europe would show more independence and sovereignty and was capable of defending her own national interests, the interests of her people and her countries. And uh, this was actually put together by um, a pretty astute observer of, of Russian politics and geopolitical affairs, the Saker. Um, and, uh, I, you know, I, I share the observation he made, you know, late, you know, for Putin to say, I hope not, uh, as far as a full-fledged war is concerned, this is a very different uh, type of statement from Putin that we've been hearing for you know for years now. Putin has always been very positive and proactive in his statements. Uh, we will not reach conflict. I am sure the deal will work. You know things of that sort of uh, tone. And uh, you know between I hope not and um, and some other things. He said, calling, you know, referring to uh, the West as his geopolitical opponents versus, um, you know, our partners, which is what he used to say quite a lot. The gloves are coming off. I mean, he's uh, he's come to this point uh, with with Western belligerence and aggression uh, that uh, he can no longer. Um, show positivity where <laughs> where there's so little to be positive about. Uh, so, you know, I think these statements that are being made are are, uh, are indicative of um, you know, Putin and Russia's communicating to the world, uh, hey, you know, 
things may very well get very bad soon. It, that's the probable look of things. Yeah, I think that you know, with that statement, that you know, he is acknowledging just how crazy uh, our Western leaders are, and you know that there there could be the potential for you know um, more war. You know, it's hard to say exactly how things could unfold, um, but you know it, it could it could expand in uh, Moldova as we, we talked about a couple weeks ago, and, uh, and and you know and who knows from from there. Uh, things have been things move so uh, incredibly fast. You know these past two years. Um, you know it, it's it's really uh, it's really open to see you know what what could be coming next and. I think um you know Russia is preparing a lot um you know both in its developing in uh, their relationships all around the world but also with China now Russia doesn't have the massive uh military strength that it had before the Soviet Union collapse you know it it does have a strong military for sure um but it's interesting to see you know the latest developments with with China um you know they're Working on um, you know building uh, new fighter jets together, and you know, people are saying you know Western uh, media are saying, well you know how are they going to come up with the money? They don't have any money, and while some of that is true, you know, it's not as bad as uh, the West portrays it, and particularly like um, with uh, the Mistral um, uh, agreement that they had with um, France. Mm-hmm. That that one under uh, Harrison mentioned briefly before, you know, that fell through, and um, because of the sanctions, and you know, I think that was close to, you know, it was around one billion dollars. Um, so, you know, mine's going to be coming for that, and it looks like, you know, they're and and they're also they're making these massive deals with China. Um, while, you know, it, it's it'll be interesting to see. How uh, the, if the Turkish uh, stream does uh, move forward, uh, but if not, you know, it's they still do have. It's not just like they have Plan A, Plan B. They have like Plan B, C, D, E, F. I'm sure they have tons and tons of ideas that they're developing all the time. Um, Gazprom just uh, made a, a statement that negotiations with China uh, for the uh, pipeline. I think they're calling it the Siberia Pipeline Two, or or the uh, Power of Siberia Two. Um, so that was uh, this past as past uh, Wednesday, I believe. Um, and and then there's the the military drills that they're uh, conducting with uh, China and the Sea of Japan. Um, they're going on right now. They're going from. Uh, August 20th, and they'll end in, uh, just, uh, or they just ended yesterday, actually. And like these were the longest uh, China-Russia exercises yet. Um, they were they were pretty massive. You know, they they both countries they included like you know dozens of ships and submarines and helicopters and you know all sorts of stuff going on there. And so it you know it points to this strengthening uh relationships and you know China does have a huge huge military and um you know it seems that they're complementing each other um where you know wherever the needs are you know it's kind of like fitting together like a like a puzzle piece mm-hmm. 
And while these things are going on, of course, in the West, uh, you know, there's been a lot of anti-China-Russian uh, relation uh, propaganda. Uh, there was one article from the National Interest, which is um, it's written by some uh, some movers and shakers from the Atlantic Cancel, uh, Council, and so they they were basically saying that you know these uh, this relationship is a is a nightmare to the United States, and <laughs> that uh, so that and that this partnership, uh, what what Russia and China are trying to do, is uh, it, it provides them a chance to reach. This is a quote. The chance to reshape the global order to their liking, uh, the article goes on to say, no single nation can singularly shape international outcomes, um, but called on the U.S. to act as, uh, quote, first among equals. <laughs> like, uh, just how uh, egocentric is that? And how, like, that's exactly what the United States does is, you know, tries to reshape the global order to their liking. Like, yeah, it's, it's just this uh, this repeated theme that we keep seeing over and over, and it's it's just it's just getting kind of ridiculous. You know? um, that reminds me of a story, Shane, of um, I think Zhang Shiping, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, the uh, mm-hmm. the leader of China was scheduled to visit Obama in the White House and be received there, and um, there has been all this kind of you know. Uh, don't be nice to him. He's cyber attacking the U.S., uh, which is, you know, China's been uh, vehemently denying. They're like, show show us the evidence. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not yeah. making these assertions and show us what what proof you have that we're doing this. Mm-hmm. Uh, cut cut out the bullshit, basically. And um, you know, not that not that China isn't smart enough to to see through. Obama's diplomatic BS plays, but uh, you know, uh, this is a this is a leader of a, a of a major nation in the world uh, that we have a lot of ties to, and the the stupidity coming out of the mouths of of our political leaders in regards to this guy, you know, don't have you know, disinvite him, you know, mm-hmm. it, it's it's <laughs> so it's juvenile, it's totally juvenile. Yeah, I think. Um... I think Putin is scheduled to come to the UN uh September yeah. September 15th, right? So right. so I'm sure we'll see lots more of that in you know the coming weeks. Just that that portrayal of, you know, uh just this this idiotic like you know middle school mentality of um yeah, let, let's shun him and you know uh, I think the um, behind the headlines, guys, did a, a similar theme. Um, might have been last year about when uh, the oh, it was during the G8 summit, and you know how all the world leaders were were acting towards uh, towards Putin. It's just uh, it's really pathetic. I think Russia is uh, it's their turn to go into the UN Security Council to head that up. Um, I believe uh, Putin. And, Ban Ki Moon are going to be meeting to exchange their worldviews. That's going to be interesting. Yeah. Looks like we might have another caller. So I'm going to we're going to take it. Let's we'll say beforehand, no more questions on amphibious animals. 
All right, so caller, you're on the line. You're on the air. Let us know who you are and what you want to talk about. Hello. 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 What's your Hi, name? Can you hear us? Yes, can you can hear, hear me? Us? Yeah, we can we hear can you hear just you. fine. Yes, I can. Okay, so I'm looking from Northern Ireland. Oh, great. <laughs> Welcome. Uh, right. This What's is your my name? first time calling in. Lisa. Hi, Lisa. Um, not to get off the beaten track, but I'm very curious because I've never, of all the shows I've listened to, I have never heard anything about racist negative people and what impact this would have on them or are they important in what's happening lately in the world. Can you say that again? That what type of people? You know people that have the blood grip, racist negative. I'm one of those people. And okay. I was wondering what impact, you know, is it going to have on ourselves? I mean, where did our blood grip come from, for instance? You know, I'm just interested because I've never, ever heard of a show sort of focusing on that. Well, personally, I don't I don't have any expertise, so I wouldn't be able to comment on it. Um Maybe some, maybe some of the other guys would, but I'd just say that that might be a topic to to bring up on the health and wellness show, also on our channel. So we do, that um, airs every Friday at uh, 10 p.m. Eastern time. You might want to check it out there because I'm pretty sure they'd be able to talk about blood groups. Yeah, because I'm I'm just really interested, you know, from the point of view where they're sort of you know trying to decrease the population. Um, the, you know, they talked about blue bloodlines and all the rest, and I just was curious to see if there was something more to it. Well, it seems to me that, you know, a lot of the uh, interest from, you know, the the powers that be are, are really, you know, against um, just all of humanity, and it's not, it's not just focused on, you know, particular bloodlines, but you know they, these um, these pathological leaders. You know, there's a um, there's an inherent dislike, and you can even say hatred towards just human beings. Um, so I, I think you know it, it can be expressed in a number of ways, and you know we see it with uh, the immigration crisis, and we see it with the instigation of race wars, and you know, and, and so on. Um, so, you know, I, I don't know if that really answers your question, but it's kind of a, a broad view from from my perspective. Yeah, I don't. I think it's okay, probably. No. Yeah, I think it. Like when you look at the the leaders, like Shane was saying, I don't think that there's any. Well, personally, I don't think that there's anything that will be targeted towards like Reese's positive or negative blood type people. It's more of a. Um, it's more of a psychological thing. The difference between a psychopath and a normal person, and so psychopaths—they probably, you know, they probably couldn't care less um, to a certain degree what type of blood you have. But it's the fact that you've got a conscience, and that's the—that's the real division. Um, it has probably less to do with blood and more to do with the the difference between a psychopath and a normal person. Yeah, okay. I just had read that most of the presidents that had down the line had, were all racist negative and were all connected in some way, related in some way. Oh, yeah, I haven't heard that, but maybe the case, I'll have to look it up. 
Yep, that's great. Thank you for taking my call. All right, thank you, Lisa. Thank you. Thank you, Nye. Bye. Bye bye. All right, so we've got we've got about uh, ten minutes left. Do you guys have any other stories we want to bring up in the time we've got left? Or well, um, if y'all hadn't caught it yet, um, one of our guests, Joaquin Hagopian, who had been on a, a few weeks back, um, he just came out with a a new article called "Analyzing the Seven Stages of Grief." amidst 2015's doom and gloom events. And um, Joaquin was uh, a practicing uh, uh, therapist for a number of years, so uh, what he did there in his article was to combine uh, or apply uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's expanded five stages of grief to seven. She added two. to the types of um, large-scale events that we're seeing unfold and how that's going to affect people personally uh, and in mass. So um, he does a wonderful job with it. Um, He he breaks it down according to her structure. Um, The first stage uh, with you know, any kind of mass event, you know, let's use for example uh, an economic collapse, uh, shock and disbelief. Um, you know, people have been so brainwashed, as we were talking about at the top of the show, uh, to think that um, something like that could never happen here, uh, right up until the time that it occurs, that for a while, for instance, they'll probably be in a very deep state of of shock and disbelief. And I think that that may probably be true for a lot of folks who are even uh, on top of things and and looking at this type of information. Uh, It's kind of one thing to know about it, but it's another thing to see uh, and experience uh, its its ramifications and its effects on people and and to live through the circumstances that, that occur with such a thing. Um, the second uh, stage of grief uh, is denial. Um, you know, it, it's coming up with all of the kinds of uh, um, cognitive lies to ourselves that that are uh, that help to make it easy to deny reality. Um, so, uh, you know, using um, all types of arguments and and uh that people are being set up to think for their own so they think um you know they they might be likely to come up with the idea that uh all of this is you know um couldn't possibly be something that was by design uh but must be a conspiracy theory or um will only be temporary or, uh, you know, like George Bush said, never let us tolerate outrageous conspiracy theories. Anyway, there are all of these ideas and, and cognitive kind of um, uh, narratives that we've been implanted with that that have uh, 
set us up or programmed us to deny uh, reality for what it is. Um, the third one is anger. Uh, there will be a good deal of very angry people who will need to um, channel their realization of just how deep and pervasive and painful uh, the um, the acts of our government are towards us. Uh, they might be likely to respond in a number of ways. Um, it could be violence. Uh, it might probably be violence in many cases because these people will be desperate. Um, another stage that he discusses is bargaining. And and that is kind of, you know, talking to the universe and trying to make a deal. You know, look, if you make things better, I, I promise I'll go to church from now on and, and be a good Christian. Um, and he develops that really well. Uh, the fifth stage is, uh, is guilt. Um, and he gets into... Uh, the subject of survivor's guilt and and uh, what someone with conscience may experience uh, knowing that they're doing okay for themselves, but others aren't. Um, so that's, that's kind of a, a natural thing that I think a lot of folks are likely to experience. Um, and then there's depression, stage number six. Um, all of this is extremely depressing. Um, you know, how how many of us will be depressed thinking about how the situation is affecting others and uh, and feeling hopeless about the situation? Um, and the last stage, number seven, is acceptance and hope. Uh, and he talks about all of the uh, kinds of most constructive things that one can do at this time. Uh, if folks haven't heard it, um, Michael Snyder's approach to what's coming in the future I thought was was very good. Uh, try to help others. Try to help oneself. Be prepared. Um, make peace with yourself. Make peace with your life and with the people that you love. Um, and the article is... Uh, is quite long and, and developed, uh, but really quite worth a read. I don't think I could do it justice right now, but do have a look. Um, it's on SOT. It's on the page right now. It's in the uh, uh, the um, the spirit uh, section, um, and it's called Analyzing the Seven Stages of Grief Amidst 2015's Doom and Gloom Events. Um, you know, it's, I think it's just another thing that we can look at and reflect on um, about our psychology and emotions that can help prepare us for, for what's coming. And to just quickly um, to say something on, on these seven stages, you know, it seems that uh, truth is a really essential part of, of, these, of these stages. Uh, the um, sincere drive to, you know, really look at what the truth is. Uh, whether in uh, um, alternative media or in the mainstream, you know that that drive can get you through the the anger and you know um, and and help process these things. All right, looks like that's it. So uh, 
see everyone next week. Everyone take care. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Take care and be prepared.